0: Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, President and Editor in Chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today, and we'd love to hear what you think. This is This week in global development.
1: This week's a little bit different. We're going to dive into a topic we haven't covered as much because we haven't been on the ground, and that's the humanitarian response in Gaza. And uh, we're joined by a couple of special guests to help us get through this discussion and learn a little bit more about what's going on in terms of the humanitarian response. Uh, Arnaud Kemen is the regional uh, regional director for the Middle East and North Africa and Europe at Mercy Corps. Hi, Arnaud.
2: Hey, hi, Raj. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, thanks for being here. And we're joined by Saddam Sayaleh, who is the regional development lead at Anera. Hi, Saddam. Hi. hi, thank you for having me, Raj. Yeah, great. Great to be with you. And then my colleague, Anna Gawell, who you all know well, is the managing editor at DevEx.
3: Hi, everyone. Great to be here. Yeah,
1: good to be here, although the topic we're diving into is a, is a very challenging one. Um, you know, I think people are pretty well aware of the situation from a humanitarian perspective in Gaza. Uh, You know, it now could potentially meet the global definition of famine, uh, to give you a sense of how quickly things have deteriorated there, you know, numbers are often in dispute, but most of the mainstream media talks about approximately 1% of the population having been killed, something like 20% of buildings in Gaza have been destroyed or damaged. So it's a pretty dramatic uh, humanitarian situation. We want to get a little bit into what it's like to actually try to do a response. Um, under these conditions and we've got two, you know perfect people to talk to about this. So thank you Saddam and Arnav for taking some time um, Saddam, I understand you have yourself not been into Gaza You're in Egypt if I understand right and you've got a team of some 70 plus people uh, Doing aid work inside Gaza. Is that correct?
4: Hi Raj. Um, yeah, I've been I've been in Egypt um, uh, So I'm usually in Jordan Uh, Working, you know, like, uh, for whoever doesn't know an era, we operate in Palestine, Gaza, uh, Lebanon, and Jordan. Um, And my role is to work in these three countries. But since the beginning of the war, I've been deployed to Egypt um, to try to work with the Egyptian authorities, ONRWA um, and, and the different UN agencies on, on humanitarian relief to Gaza through RAFAH, through the Egyptian borders. We in Gaza right now um, have over 20 staff who um, who we've been working in Gaza for over 45 years with ANERA. And we are uh, working with over 450 volunteers who are helping ANERA to distribute um, the humanitarian relief Items that we are sending through Egypt and Jordan. Yes, but, um, I think for people who are not as familiar with an area, You've been
1: operating in the West Bank and Gaza for many many years. You've got a long history there And so yeah. when this crisis erupted you were obviously one of the first organizations to be there to be able to respond And I know Sean Carroll your CEO who's been on this program in the past was actually there in person just a few weeks back I guess one question for you been involved in a lot of humanitarian work over the years How would you describe the level of chaos in terms of aid distribution? Or has there been some more organization that you've been able to bring to it? Because we see the imagery on videos that come out of, you know, relief trucks coming into the country and bags of food and other products being haphazardly distributed. It seems really hard to organize aid distribution. How would you characterize that aspect
4: of the response? I mean, before, I think, you know, considering the situation right now in 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 gaza we're looking at 85 percent of the population of gaza displaced um for many it's multiple times where the famine review committee reports that gaza has surpassed the acute food insecurity um it is natural to look um you know just considering the north of gaza being emptied for the past 90 over like we're we're getting into 100 days of the war um and the people who have been living in the north which is the most populated they were displaced to the south of Gaza looking at Rafah government in Gaza which is the smallest uh, pre-war right now is hosting over 1 million displaced gazans um it is it is understandable that the level of catastrophe the level of food insecurity, the level of need of people who've been displaced m- multiple times is to witness chaos. But with era, again, we've been working in the West Bank, in, in, in Gaza, in Palestine for over 55 years, in Gaza specifically 45 years. The people know us, our team are from Gaza. So it's been really a smooth transition since the beginning of the war um, to distribute aid that is coming from Egypt or Jordan, uh, or even doing local procurement inside Gaza. But we do see um, a lot of chaos, um, but this chaos has many reasons, and one of them is the need is great. The aid that is crossing to Gaza is not enough. I would just give a number before ending, You know, answering your question, Raj. We were looking at pre-war over 500 trucks getting into Gaza on a daily basis. Since the beginning of this war, the average of trucks going inside Gaza been 100, 100 trucks, more or less. And sometimes there were so many days with no trucks getting into Gaza. So you can imagine the reasons of this chaos. It's understandable. The need is great. And from what I understand, Saddam, that even understates the
1: situation because you're talking about particularly the Egypt crossing. Right? Whereas, uh, the vast majority of the food and other products in Gaza were coming from Israel before the war. It's even more dramatic than that because you had an entire drop off of the private sector commercial business of people being able to buy cooking products, you know, flour and oil and whatever else, and that's gone. And then the aid side is also much diminished from where it used to be or could be. Uh, maybe now we can get you into the conversation too. I, you know, One of the things I think about when I think about Mercy Corps is your cash transfers work. And obviously, this has been a major area of focus in the humanitarian space in the last decade or so. And it's been growing and growing. But from what I understand, it's really hard to do in Gaza precisely for the reasons I just described, that even if people have money, there's very little to buy. Are you distributing cash? What do you see as the kind of the, the circumstances that, that might or might not allow you to do that?
2: so um i mean that's a very good question because that's uh at the heart of um of what we are dealing with at the moment um cash is uh by and large the the best uh way to deliver aid um at scale because uh it strengthens the local market uh, it gives people a, a much more agency in terms of addressing their own needs and it's uh, fairly uh, scalable uh, in terms of the, the delivery um <clears throat> we were able to do few distributions in the early days of this crisis even though the 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 area was sealed there was enough stock for some form of market to function Um, and uh, it was still better to do that uh, than to rely on in-kind distribution even at that point but at the moment we are talking about a a level of destruction physical and um, systemic that is so thorough that it doesn't make any sense to to consider uh such a modality uh, right now uh, of course our our uh, goal is to get back to a situation where this is possible but um just first of all uh, the, the level of uh, of, of supplies uh, available inside gaza now is at, at a extreme low level, uh, extremely low level extremely low level one that we have a, a hard time imagining because we we live in a world of uh, of some form of opulence i would say when the, the level of scarcity that is faced by the people in Gaza is 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 really uh, extreme. Price of commodity is like now uh, sometimes whenever it's available uh, for sale, it's like ten or twenty times the, the the normal price. Including for other things like lease of uh, uh to to lease a place to to send to to shelter to our staff, for instance, we we had to pay extreme high levels of of, uh, of cost because the, there's very little on the market, uh, so everybody is, uh, is ready for it.
1: Yeah, I referred earlier to the famine situation in Gaza. And you know, by WFP metrics, they have this IPC scale, and IPC5 is the worst. And that there's some half a million Gazans who are thought to be at that level, which is the worst level of starvation. And that's happened, obviously, very quickly as there has been little access to food products, as you say. You know, I, I wonder right now. Just c- continuing on this this theme, like if it's hard to get products, you can't get cash into the area. Uh, what about communications? Like, are you able to speak with your team in Gaza? How, how often can you talk to them? How do you talk to them? Do they have access to cell phones, and can they power their their batteries to talk to you?
2: This has been a an issue from the beginning um, because we we. There are two reasons why the the communication system is uh, at very high risk. First, because uh, in a context of massive destruction, uh, inevitably the the network is suffering. And uh, secondly, it's also very, uh, like it's something that is usually even targeted for military reasons, right? So uh, we were very afraid that at times we would even look into a complete black hole for for the area. it happened. Uh, it happened several times where we, we completely lost access to uh, almost completely uh, uh, communication uh, with our staff. I say almost because a few of them were able to pick up uh, Egyptian network at the border. And uh, and that was basically a lifeline to, to to keep connection through them with the rest of our team. You mentioned 70 staff. That that's basically the, the size of our t- team at the moment. So, so basically, we, we have a very low... Uh, like a light touch approach to communication, but we insist on trying to keep it alive uh, on a daily basis, because one of the major fear of our team is to be forgotten. Uh, to not be heard anymore. Uh, And so we we send them and are in touch with at least some of them every day. And we also a system to to decrease the cost on them with like um, a a way to passively see if they saw our messages. And if we see that they read it, we consider that they are accounted for. And we do this roll call every day. Uh, At times we lost touch with staff for like a couple of weeks, fortunately. Um, most of them came back online, we are still currently, there is one staff in the north that we haven't been able to contact for a couple of weeks, but uh, we try to send people to the area where they are to to confirm that they are fine. Um, given the level of uh, movement available, uh, possible in the in the Gaza Strip at the moment, you understand it. it's very challenging.
1: Very challenging indeed, and, and obviously these are people who themselves are going through the crisis and they're also trying to support and assist others in the humanitarian response. It's a very tough situation to be in. Saddam, what about you and your team? Do you have a similar process in place of checking in on them? What is it like to try to coordinate the effort
4: from uh, from a different country? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just a, a bit of a reminder, you know, like electricity has been cut out since, has been out in Gaza since 11, October 11th. 11, and, you know, fuel is still an issue we have seen um you know in 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 the the, the telecom company um inside gaza a, a, a almost warning of their generators do not have fuel to continue um operating and we and, and and this where, you know we're looking at the fuel crisis since the beginning of the war Um, uh, people don't have uh, enough fuel um, and even humanitarian agencies don't have enough fuel for humanitarian delivery. And communication blackouts, you know, the north of Gaza is completely, I would say, in communication blackout. Once we go center-south, the communication blackouts are on and off. So one of the, I would say, um, uh, uh, challenging things um, that ANERA has to continue to do and worry about as a team, as a family, is when we can't reach our team, who are, for, in, in my perspective, they're our heroes who are distributing humanitarian aid. And once you don't have access or communication with one of your staff who, who who's going into the field to distribute aid, then the level of stress, the level of anxiety at everyone is like, where is Sammy, who is distributing aid in Darabella? And and this continues to happen. We do regular check-ins every morning, but the communication blackout's been one of the most challenging things to communicate with humanitarian staff who are distributing that aid. Can, can, can you just speak to how
1: you were able to get your CEO, Sean Carroll? And I think he went in with um, Jose uh, Andres, the chef and and CEO or or chairman of uh, World Central Kitchen. How were you able to actually get them in to cross from Egypt into Gaza? What was that like
4: to get them in and get them out again under these circumstances? So, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, I mean I, I wouldn't say it's an easy process, but uh, again, era been operating in the West Bank and Gaza. Um, I've been deployed in Egypt to build these relationships with the Egyptian authorities, who've been very supportive, and and, and the coordination with them to allow Hussein and um, and Sean to go into Gaza to sue to do uh, the field assessment needed for the humanitarian need on the ground. Um, it was very about a powerful visit. Um, we were able to document their visit, but also to document how challenging it is um, to distribute humanitarian aid, um, uh, whether to get this aid in, uh, we all know like, or we have heard about the obstacles, the challenges of delivering aid uh, or, or aid to cross into Gaza versus you know, the need on the ground. So um, it was a coordination with the Egyptian authorities um, to allow, you know, Jose Andreas and, and Sean, the CEO of Panera, to go and do the field assessment needed um, in the field in Gaza.
2: Hi, I'm Kate Warren, executive editor at DevEx. If you are listening to this podcast, you're likely working to achieve the sustainable development goals. But are you subscribed to DevX Newswire? Global development can be a fast-moving, complex sector. Our team of global reporters work every day to bring you the news you need to make sense of it all. In DevX Newswire, we keep you up to date on issues ranging from climate change financing to gender equality and global health to transforming the food system, all in a fun-to-read, free newsletter delivered directly to you five days a week. Join the hundreds of thousands of global development professionals who receive DevX Newswire and visit Devex.com newsletters to sign up to this free newsletter today.
1: Anna, feel free to jump in with your own question. I'll just have one more for, for Saddam, which is around the crossings um, that we've been talking about. Supposedly, from what I read, things are getting a little bit better. The numbers have been going up. And there is an idea, which is, I think the Dutch government has provided X-ray equipment that would allow for the security checks that the Israeli Defense Forces are doing to be much more quick and efficient. Um, Right now they're done manually. I'm I'm imagining both of your organizations are involved in some of these conversations. Is there a prospect that this will open up a bit more and we'll be able to to speed up the number of trucks that can get through? Uh, Because that does seem... Like the essential ingredient, right, for addressing this famine in the near term, besides a ceasefire or a resolution to the war itself.
2: I mean, if I can come in on this, um, the the X-ray you're talking about are already deployed, uh, but they're not used, which leads to the the very core of this situation. It's not a; it it is it is a a, a logistical conundrum, but at its heart, it's a it's a decision to not make these. uh, You might add. possible. Whenever the decision will be made to make it possible, uh, we will be able to to mount a humanitarian response, uh, uh, a meaningful one and the one that will make the disaster we are seeing not happen anymore. But until then, uh, until there is a, 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 a this is a strategy to to make things that way. Uh, so you can send all the the technical solutions you want. If you don't have the the political will to to assuage the uh, the, the the burden we are seeing, it's it's not going to ever be uh, at the level it should be.
4: Yeah, and I I, I totally agree. Again, pre-war, just right before October seven, the Israeli borders. Um, we're able to let in over 500 trucks um, into Gaza right now. You know, I, 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 the assumption that more aid is getting into Gaza is false. It's still quite challenging. The pipeline, the truck, the thousands of trucks who are right now waiting at the Egypt side borders to be allowed in, inspected, and allowed in into Gaza is massive there are thousands of tons of aid that is right now at the border that is not getting in the delay is is very clear um uh, uh, it's intentional aid is the amount of aid that is getting into gaza is not even fraction of what is needed right now
3: you know i'm, I'm curious Raj, I wanted to follow up on on something you had said in terms of having conversations of increasing access to aid. You know, we've done a lot of uh, reporting on how the politics of the conflict has seeped into development institutions like World Food Program, USAID, where the staff are calling for leadership to speak more forcefully, make calls for ceasefire, etc. I imagine, Arnaud and, and Saddam, this mirrors the dilemma that NGOs face in terms of taking stronger public stances that could threaten their neutrality or their access. Do you have any thoughts on on what it's like, you know, to be publicly talking about this, potentially calling for ceasefires, and what that means for your behind-the-scenes conversations that you're having to, to gain more access?
2: I guess that's uh, so the, the strongest test uh, I've seen uh, of the importance of the humanitarian principles, they exist for a reason and and it is the only safety we have in making our case very strongly without it being tainted by political considerations. Um, So we we are not here to decide uh, who is right, who is wrong in this um, conflict, but we are here to say there is an unacceptable humanitarian situation happening and i would say um and uh and not lose our moral compass this is something that requires a lot of communication internally uh and uh i can tell you that i've been in the most intense meetings of my career with our team in some parts of the region but once this was presented to them very clearly which is basically a, 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 a uh this is all based on a desire and an, a mandate to deliver aid um, ultimately agreed that uh that's the 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 case for our. For, uh, that's basically the reason why Mexico exists uh and um and then we, we managed to, to to get a, a great uh, sense of support from everybody in the region even those who were initially advocating for uh moving into a much more like advocacy, like a political statement, uh, uh until they realized that we could not do both at the same time.
4: Yeah, I, I I would like to add to that as well. You know, um for an era, it's it's you know, we're we're trying to respond to a humanitarian catastrophe, um to eighty five percent of Gazans being displaced. Um we understand, you know, the political challenge of um the situation. And we are trying our best to just focus on advocating for the children, the women, the men, the elderly, the disabled who are in need right now for humanitarian assistance. And, and we've been um, talking um, publicly about our stance in regard of increasing humanitarian aid into Gaza um, and, and how can we protect the humanitarian workers to efficiently respond to that need.
1: Maybe just one more question for me um, as we maybe start to wrap up and, and just mention a few other headlines from the week. Is there something you see in the press coverage of this crisis in terms of the humanitarian response that you think we in journalism are getting wrong? You know, Is there something that you see as kind of a misconception or that might be surprising to people who've been reading a lot of coverage about the humanitarian response in Gaza? Either of you have a thought about that?
2: At some point, I had to tell our team about the communication we were making about the, the crisis that the siege started on day one and everybody was very worried about it. And there was a, a first phase of a huge concern and, and talk about it. And then we got used to the notion that people were suffering in Gaza. It's inevitable. While when I was talking with our team in Gaza, that's the opposite. They are getting worse every day. Their situation is getting increasingly bad every day that passes. So these two trajectories are contradictory, because on one hand, there is an inevitable sense of um, adaptation to these bad news. And on the other hand, there are people who are even themselves are surprised by how far things are going and how bad they have become. So it's not uh, not an issue with the coverage of the media themselves, but it's very hard to reconnect the news with the reality at the human level uh, that is behind this, in spite of time passing
4: very interesting Saddam I'd love to hear your take on that i i I really like what you said reality is uh, I was just yesterday with a friend of mine who been evacuated from Gaza recently and there was a question was asked to her about the situation in in Gaza is it is it still as bad as as you know the beginning of the war, and she was like, it's even worse. But media are talking less about it. The situation is getting worse and worse, but the media is le- less and less talking about the situation in Gaza. Um, the second thought is fuel. I I I cannot stress enough, you know, the Israeli government you know, they continue to say that fuel delivery to water and such sanitation um, facilities is, is is continuing. While in reality, that is not happening. The amount of fuel that is being allowed in into Gaza is is a fraction of what is needed to be able to deliver humanitarian assistance uh, to al Balah, to Khan Yunus, um to Rafah we cannot do as a humanitarian organizations to go to the north of gaza all of these areas to distribute the aid needed if we can't access them and fuel is one of the most critical um items that is needed right now to deliver humanitarian assistance and especially in winter where heat is is, is needed you know winterization is is needed but but you know on the media you don't hear much about this um Israel said they're allowing some fuel in, but that is a fraction of what is needed. Um and and the argument that, you know, what if this fuel gets into the wrong hands? You know an area, Mercy Corps, other organization, we're trusted INGOs, we have a very strong no contact policy, we operate and we partner with the UN to deliver humanitarian assistance, who so are very much trusted, and we just need this trust to expand to uh, to allow more fuel in to deliver humanitarian assistance. So yes, media needs to speak about this, um, uh, 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 share the perspective of the humanitarian organisations in the field, and the challenges that we're facing, and 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 how can they support us on this.
1: Well, it's been really
4: fascinating and valuable to hear from both of you about what the response
1: is like. Obviously, there's um, a lot of focus and attention within our community, the humanitarian and development community on what's happening in Gaza. And the, at the same time, there's so many other conflicts happening in the world. It's really a moment of crisis and your organizations are, uh, are stretched very thin trying to handle so many different crises at the same time. Uh, and we had obviously other stories this week, just briefly, as we start to wrap up here, Is there any any other piece that you wanted our listeners to be aware of?
3: There was quite a big development in terms of we had uh, Bangladesh hold its elections on Sunday. Uh, The prime minister, Sheikh Hasina, won an all-too-predictable victory. And uh, this has prompted a lot of questions that we've been examining about what to do when a development success story backslides on democracy. Um, There have been, of course, significant strides made under um, she has seen as leadership over the last 15 years on education, health, and of course, slashing poverty. But, uh, but that's just it. She's been in power for actually over 15 years. Um, the opposition party boycotted this election. Thousands have been arrested. So, you know, the dilemma is what do NGOs and donors do when confronted with this type of situation? Uh, in our reporting, some said that, you know, humanitarian aid should rise above politics Um, Others said that good governance is likely to make aid much more effective, so you need to have that foundation in place. Um, But I think it's uh, worth reading, and I think it's a dynamic that will continue, because as you pointed out before, Raj, we've got 60% of the world is going to go to the ballot box in 2024. So I think the situation is not confined to Bangladesh, and I think we're going to encounter these dynamics more throughout the year.
1: Yeah, and it does look like, as our conversation has made clear with Gaza, this is a year where the trend toward more and more humanitarian crises and more of the broader development community having to focus on emergencies uh, is likely to take place. I and mean, It's not it's not a good start to 2024 in that sense at all, um, but it has been a, a great start to this program to get the chance to speak with our two special guests today. So I want to particularly thank them for, for being a part of this, Nud. Kamini and Saddam Sayele, thank you for uh, for the work you're doing, your organizations are doing, and for, for being a part of the conversation today.
4: Thank you very much, Raj, for um, uh, hosting us, but as well, you know, sharing the stories um, and and the situation in Gaza. Uh, thank you.
2: Thanks, Rash, uh, and and yes, same. Uh, it's a great opportunity to talk about Gaza and any anything we can do to. Uh, help uh, people understand the challenges we are facing and people facing in Gaza uh, is extremely uh, valuable. So thanks again for uh, giving that opportunity to us.
0: This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com slash membership and signing up.